Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today we get to hear a lecture. It's a lecture by Dr. James Earl Massey, who is Dean Emeritus of Anderson School of Theology in Anderson, Indiana, and a longtime friend and collaborator with Beeson Divinity School. Uh, everybody listening to this podcast, I am sure, is either a preacher or someone who listens to preachers. And this is a lecture about preaching. What is it that preachers do when they prepare their sermons, when they deliver them? Uh, what is a strategy for preaching? How, are, how ought we to think about preaching in terms of what Dr. Massey calls centered creativity? Dr. Massey has given the William E. Conger Jr. lectures on biblical preaching at Beeson not once or twice, but three times. And this lecture we're going to hear today comes from the third series of Conger lectures he presented in Hodges Chapel in the year 2010. So let's listen to our friend Dr. James Earl Massey as he speaks on centered creativity in preaching. Lest I appear foolhardy in using the word poetics to describe what I have prepared to share, I will immediately begin by explaining that my use of that word for these lectures is different both in scope and detail from Aristotle's historic and influential writing by that title. Many of you, like I am, are quite familiar with Aristotle's poetics, and that is a work that remains a dominating document in the literary field. Although I am using the term poetics here with a different focus, I am concerned, as was Aristotle, with what it means and with what it takes to shape something with an interest in its essence and its effects. The focus here is upon the work of preaching, how to conceive and shape the activity to make it serve its God-intended end. It is in that context that my use of poetics is to be understood, and I invite you to join me here in thinking anew about preaching as a medium of meaning and a medium of presence. With the sermon as something the preacher creates, makes, shapes, brings about, prepares to serve such a purpose. As for making, shaping, creating, preparing, bringing something about, all of these are in the Greek terms that are behind the word poetics. The Greek terms are poeo and poein. And if you want to check those out, you'll discover a world of meaning in that term or those two terms to help us understand the business of creating in order to preach. The poetics of preaching then have to do with how to make sermons, how to prepare them, how to shape them, to share meaning, how to understand and handle the factors and the elements that govern 
what it means to share the Word of God with people in such a way that the effects of what we give will have a lasting and necessary consequence in their consciousness and their behavior. As I'm guided, as I'm guided here by what I have prepared, I'm reminded of a statement that musician Pablo Casals voiced to his students as he was teaching them how to make music. He said, I will say only elemental things, nothing complicated. But you must know that the simplest elemental things are the things that count. I will stick to elemental factors. One more word about the business of poetics before dealing with the first of the elemental factors. Preaching is a verbal art. And as such, it can be described under six specific elements. Element one, someone addressing. Element two, an audience being addressed. Element three, a specific context binds speaker and hearers. Element four, language is used that is common to both speaker and hearers. Element five, a communal relationship exists between speaker and hearers. Element six, the message being shared has some particulars that are seen in the function of what has been prepared. As I go through these two days of sharing, three days really, with Thursday morning being the conclusion, I will be dealing with all of this under three descriptions. And today I start with centered creativity. The first elemental factor, first of the simplest things in preparing to preach, is a clearly understood sense of the purpose that preaching is intended to serve. One never preaches in general. One always preaches in particular. A purpose is always in view when preaching is considered. A divinely purposed assignment and activity is what we call preaching the gospel. A purpose implies a result toward which someone aims and then acts with concern to achieve it. A purpose bespeaks intention, intentionality, there's a preceding resolve, and there is a plan of action by which to achieve an intended result. Preaching is never done in general. Preaching is always particular. It is done on purpose. Paul's letters are filled with statements about the divine purpose associated with the message and ministry of Jesus. Again and again, Paul mentions that a divine purpose actuated him, a divine purpose supported him, a divine purpose explains him, 
And from the many statements that are credited to Paul, think of this one in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For he, God, has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, his prothesis, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God never acts without purpose, and we cannot preach without purpose. Think of this as in Ephesians 3, verse 11. According to the eternal purpose, his prothesis, which he has realized in Christ our Lord. Or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. God saved us and called us for the holy calling, not in virtue of our works, but in virtue of his own purpose, his prothesis, and the grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus long ago, but has now manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul, speaking personally, explained himself as a beneficiary of God's grace, and he explained his preaching as an assigned activity that he did not choose on his own. He claims he was born for it, called to it, summoned for it. Says he in 2 Timothy 1.11, For this gospel I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Thanks to Paul, there is also in 2 Corinthians 5 that classic statement that includes us within that whole sphere of purpose when he said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and has entrusted the message of that reconciliation to us. So we then are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. That is why preaching was assigned. God to make an appeal on his behalf through us to the world. What an assignment. Richard Lisher, in his Beecher Lectures, commented, Whenever we preach, our sermons participate in this, God's definitive gesture toward the world. Anyone who has this calling, anyone who has received this assignment, is usually given time to be conditioned to handle the assignment and is given assistance to handle the assignment. We do not preach on our own, even as we do not preach for ourselves. Paul planned and kept his preaching strictly within the revealed purpose for preaching. And according to Romans 10, that is the standard for all who acknowledge a call to preach. Paul says in Romans 10:14, How are per per people to call on him of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And then he concludes, so faith comes from the what is heard. And what is heard 
comes by the preaching of Christ. There is, in a very real sense, no salvation apart from preaching. Paul spoke of himself as a recipient of grace. Let me say just a word about grace before moving on to talk more about considered creativity. Grace is, comes from a Greek word, charis, which originally referred to the affective qualities of someone or something that gave pleasure or delight to the person beholding that something or that someone. The word was later expanded in meaning to include the response those affective qualities excited in the beholder. Still later, the New Testament writers used the word grace to mean the favor extended to human beings by God in order to grant them pardon and forgiveness for sins. It's a loaded term. We use it constantly, and we need to take time and let our people understand how the term first arose in the meaning of the church as we now use it. Just to say the term grace does not convey meaning. We need to explain it, and in order to explain it, we need to go back to our own roots of Christian faith to see ourselves as recipients of it. So that when we explain it, there's a warmth to it that is inviting and claiming. I stand here by grace, and I'm very much aware that it is a signal honor to be asked to do the lectureship, not only once, but twice, and now a third time. I've been granted grace to get it right this time. So grace, biblically understood, is that accepting attitude on God's part that is expressed in the helpful actions of granting us mercy, forgiveness of sins, deliverance from the power of sin, and a full adoption back into the family with all attended benefits associated with belonging. I have sometimes listened to prayers in the church. I was not listening as a critic, but I could not help but overhear the begging tone in the prayers. And I wondered to myself, how was it that that person did not understand that their adoption as a child into the family of God gave them the privilege to ask God for things. We do not have to beg God. We are his children. Let me illustrate it further. My father, now of a blessed memory, died at the age of 87. Whenever I would go home to visit my father and my mother as a grown man, I would take something to them. And I could never leave without my father siding up to me privately and asking, James, do you need anything? Do you need anything? And if I needed it, I would have had it because that's my father. I never had to beg my father for anything. 
Now transfer that to a higher level. Jesus told the disciples, If you then, being human, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? The church has not learned that yet. We must preach in such a way that they understand the meaning of grace. All right, element number one, the simple element in preparing to preach is a clearly understood sense of the purpose for preaching, to share God's grace. The second basic element in preparing to preach is a Christ-centered personhood. So serious was Paul about his assignment from God to preach the gospel that he confessed being ambitious only to live for Christ. You chalk this up as spirituality. Paul wrote it down as actuality. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the way he said it in writing to the Philippians. Now those words Paul wrote to the church there at Philippi about himself shows us an intentional, purpose-governed, Christ-centered person. We as preachers must never consider ourselves apart from Jesus Christ. This is why we live. The called preacher is assigned to preach on behalf of Christ, and we live for his work. The Christian preacher must live under the felt necessity to embody and to articulate publicly the significance of Jesus as the Christ, the Anointed One. God in the flesh. Now this message and this embodiment allows for a ministry that has an edge to it. You can always tell when someone has an anointing and when somebody is just talking. There's an edge to the anointing. There's a claiming, gripping factor to it that cannot be gotten in any other way except from God. And this combination of message and embodiment allows the purpose of preaching to be fulfilled. It is one thing to be enamored of the idea about Christ and to be supported by others who appreciate a culture in which that idea is honored. But it's quite another thing to embrace and be embraced by the reality of Christ so as to live and labor always and only for Him. Being Christian really means to be Christian. That is to say, our presence represents His presence. This is what I mean by a Christ-centered personhood. Personhood. Think of personhood as not only 
consciousness, but as an endowment with distinguished gifts. An endowment with abilities. An endowment with a creativity that gives each one of us a distinctive singularity. Now, all of us are single. We are unique. We're individual. We're personal. And all of us bring something that no one else brings in exactly the same combination or in the same way. Allied with us in the given task of preaching is the self we are. That is to say, my whole psychic totality is before you now. My whole behavior is before you now. My whole set of concepts is before you now. I'm not spelling them out yet, but they are before you and as I speak, they come out in my speech. My consciousness is before you. And even my unconscious dimension is before you. The whole self is there when we preach. And if we are not very careful, the unconscious will bring up things that will muddle the preaching unless we are Christ-centered. Being centered in Christ comes through an indispensable partnership with the Holy Spirit who works to resolve the chaos and the disorder in our experience as human beings. The Holy Spirit is the systematizing participant for every Christian. I like the way Irenaeus put it. He said, the Holy Spirit comes to adjust us to God. Have you, in the days when we were using radios that were not as well-tuned as they are in our time, you had to turn the dial to get the fullness of the station, and if it wasn't on the fullness of the station, there was static. The Holy Spirit comes to adjust us to God in such a way that the static is taken away and the fullness comes through in the living and in the preaching. The Holy Spirit comes to adjust us to God. Read the church fathers, please. I run into people who think that this is the first generation that has ever lived. I'm overstating the case, but you get the point. There is wisdom from the past that we tend to overlook when we skip over the past. Church history courses are not dull, dry subject matter. They acquaint us by opening doors for our understanding of how God has dealt with others before our time. There are no seminary subjects that are dull and dry and boring except for the way they are taught. If you want more on this business of how the Holy Spirit helps adjust us to God, there's a marvelous book by Wayne Oates, longtime teacher there at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. 
His seminal works have meant much to my spirit. It was my joy to work with him some years ago in a, in a retreat for, for, um, for professors. He had his assignment, I had mine. And when we were not handling our assignments with the group, we were sharing personally with each other. And what a rich resource he was, personally, because the Holy Spirit had adjusted him to God. And when the preacher stands before the congregation, or when we stand before any single member of the congregation, God must come through without static. Preaching as a person demands a spiritual readiness that I have described under the rubric for this day, centered creativity. Centered in Christ, but the creativity is there. That's our responsibility. Christ does not create the sermons for us. I know you've discovered that. No matter how we pray, the sermon does not come to us full-blown, full-grown. We must work at it. I recall one instance when a sermon came to me almost in full. I had had the flu. By the way, my wife has the flu and could not be with us. That's why she's not present with us today. But I had the flu and I was just up from the flu by a half a day and I had an assignment in Chicago to preach for a pastor in his anniversary series. And because of the nature of my assignment and because of my closeness with him, I could not miss that. And I got well just in the nick of time to be able to carry myself there. But while I was on my sickbed, still planning to go, trusting the Lord would get me up, the sermon came full-blown. How many of you have had that experience of a sermon coming just with fullness? Okay. It's a rare thing. Very rare. All of you know the task of working at it. But when the creativity is centered in Christ, the purpose for preaching is there to give the impetus for the creativity to be working in our interest, even in the unconscious, so that when it's necessary for it to rise to the level of consciousness, there it is. There it is. Now this personal readiness requires that. But behind the personal readiness lies what theologian James E. Loder once referred to as a convictional knowing. A convictional knowing. If you read his book, The Transforming Moment, Understanding Convictional Experiences, he talks about how a convictional knowing grants a person a concern to serve God in a particularized, directed way. And that is what a call to preach is all about. When someone says to me, the Lord has called me to preach, how should I go about, um, what should I do about this? 
I sit, I sit down and I talk with him and I tell them, wait a bit and you'll get more understanding. We cannot give them the understanding. That must come from the God who gives them the call. We try our best to help prepare them in other ways, but an understanding of the call comes only by means of experience. And that calls for a convictional knowledge, knowing at the deepest levels of the persona, so that one is convicted by what is known, and concern grows out of the conviction. And when somebody says to me, I'm going to quit the ministry, I don't bother, to t bother, I don't bother them. I don't bother to try to get them not to quit, because if they can quit, wonderful. 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 Readiness to preach demands a self that is disciplined by grace, focused on honoring God-given implicates for belief and behavior, and they move out of an awareness of promise that is always being fulfilled as the obedience to the call goes forth. There's a great strength in knowing, convictionally knowing, that one has been summoned by God to do what it, one is trying to do. It gives one an awareness of meaning. It gives one a surplus energy. It gives one a sense of being involved in something that is greater than oneself. And you're willing to invest all that you are and have in it, no matter what the cost. Many of us paid the cost in seminary training. Some went beyond that. But you paid a cost because of a convictional knowledge. The church doesn't have to pay you for the cost you put in. The church pays you in order to keep you full time to do what you were called to do. And that is a blessing. And I say to ministers, if the church has called you to preach in a particular congregational life and has dared to support you, Never complain that you don't have the time to do ministry. That's what full-time ministry is for. It frees us from the trammels of having to seek employment in order that we can be free to do ministry. It also calls for time management. Handling the time with wisdom to get it all in in the course of a day or a week or a month including visitation of our members. I just threw that in. I like the way Howard Thurman talked about this convictional knowing and how it gives an impetus to what one does. I'm quoting, Under certain circumstances, a man is moved to action, forgive me, he was not using the language we now use inclusively. So he wrote man constantly in his writings, but his spirit was inclusive. Let me give him again. Under certain circumstances, a man is moved to action and feelings that are more than his customary actions and feelings. Something happens within. There's a plus to his normal energy and powers. The relationship becomes intimate between enthusiasm and morale. 
Morale being belief in one's cause, one's purpose, one's self. And out of the surplus generated by enthusiasm, morale is fashioned. When the morale is there and the enthusiasm is there, one bounds up the pulpit stairs eager to preach. And Paul understood what I was talking about when he wrote to the Christians at Rome about his eagerness, his prothumas, his readiness, his eager resolve to proclaim the gospel. He said, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. Ah. He preached everywhere else. And now he was thinking about going to Rome. He hadn't been there. Always on the frontier. So, sermons are created entities. They grow by a process, they grow by a plan, and the creativity by which this process and planning develops is evoked. It's called forth. It's stimulated in response to something. Human need, a text, a spark in the thinking, touch on the shoulder, a gripping in the soul, Something stimulates preaching. And the logic inherent in this creative action of sermon making involves being impacted. It involves being stimulated by some idea or some experience that brings about a realization. We see. Ah, we have an aha moment. And out of that occasion of engagement, that that, that aha moment, an expression is developed that we call a sermon. And we prepare it to share it vocally with other people. So beginning is a personal experience of engagement with the scripture or with life. The sermon is shaped to stimulate an experience of engagement for other people. We do not preach for ourselves. We preach for other people. So a sermon is an influenced creation, a centered creation. And it does not happen without antecedents, and it should never be used without a centered sense of purpose. I I want to say something now about preaching with soul, because when the creativity is really centered in Christ, and the person who is doing the preaching understands the purpose behind it, and the help that is being received to do it, then the soul of the person shines through to the hearers who are hearing and also seeing the sermon at work. In using that word soul, I'm quite aware that we use that word quite a bit. They are soul singers. Those are the singers who grip you as they sing. And you know you heard something when, when, they, when their voice is in your consciousness. And preachers who preach with soul do preaching that is specifically, typically, and uniquely their own preaching. 
They didn't steal it. They didn't borrow it. It's their own, it's the result of their own centered creativity. Soul preaching is more than a reflection of the understanding of a text. It's a revelation of the preacher's relationship with a text. Soul preaching shows a preacher's relationship with life, with God. It's what I call inside-out preaching. Wells up from inside, and it gushes out, and everybody who is in, within range of it is affected by it. And through it, in the words of the psalmist, deep calls unto deep. Now that can only happen when the preacher is aware of their own individuality and honors their own individuality enough to trust it in the hands of God. In connection with individuality, let me lighten a bit by giving a few illustrations from the world of music. And I want to apply the illustrations to the world of preachers. There was a discussion two pianists were having about practitioners of their craft. One pianist suggested to the other that pianists should be classified within two categories, process pianists and product pianists. He said, process pianists thrive on spontaneity. They live by audience contact and acoustics and the instrument that they are using. And they are simply lost in the moment. That is their joy. Whereas product pianists rely more so on prior planning than on what happens when they feel on the edge. They think twice before moving, so to speak, and they do nothing in their art without thinking very, very carefully and long about it. Now, these two categories apply as well to those of us who preach, I must say, because there are some preachers who admittedly are dependent upon the pulpit moment and the reaction of the audience in order for their gift to be fired up. while some others of us do our best work when we work under planned constraint. Some preachers must smooth out every statement before they'll ever deliver it. They labor over their lines in the study before they feel ready for the pulpit, while some others will be content to ascend the pulpit stairs only armed with some jagged jottings eager to draw listeners into the vortex of feeling that spontaneous speaking generates. What do you use when you go? A full manuscript? Or an envelope with a few notes written on it? My mentoring pastor always used an envelope about this size, and on the back he would write his sermon outline. This is not one of them. This is uh, just an envelope I had in my pocket. But I have a stack of his manuscripts there in my, in, my, in my study. It was bequeathed to me 
He's now deceased. I treasure them because they show me his individuality. And by being in contact with him, I also learn to trust my own individuality in the hands of the Lord. I've never used one of his sermons, although all of them inspired me. Individuality. Are you a process, pe process preacher or a product preacher? I once heard a, a preacher say in my hearing, I cannot preach unless the people say amen. And I wondered to myself, and I said so, what happens when you're with an audience that is not accustomed to that sort of response? Can you preach then? Be very careful about being dependent upon the audience. The purpose of preaching has to go forth even when people blatantly resist what we say. Some preachers are most creative when there's an atmosphere of boisterous response. Other preachers are creative when there's an atmosphere of silence. And they project into the silence their message, eager to let the intellectual dimension of their insight preside over the emotional impact. Some others feel that the stillness of silence is starkness, barrenness, and they even view it as starchiness and deadness. And they work with a gritty single-mindedness to encourage and gain a very overt audience response. You see, expectations and modes of expression will differ among us. But any preacher's preferred expressiveness can be effective, provided it is genuinely honest. Be who you are. Do not ape anyone else no matter how effective their style or presentation might be. Well, let me say something else by way of illustration. Now and again, what happens to actors and performing artists happens to preachers. They gain recognition during some dramatic occasion. In some cases, after filling in for somebody who could not fulfill an assignment. I remember Andre Watts was called in to fill in for Glenn Gould, who was ill. And so he had his opportunity to play with the New York Philharmonic under the baton of Leonard Bernstein. And that was his introduction to the world. Look at him now. Well known. Fame immediately established by filling in for somebody. Preachers can sometimes have that benefit. Filling in for somebody who couldn't get there, and now they are no longer invisible. They are known. Their name is heralded. Ah, but no matter how one comes to the public notice, one must be careful about fame. Because, as one saying goes, fame is easy to get, but hard to keep. An old English proverb tells us, fame is a magnifying glass. You see it now in some of the heralded 
shameful deeds that are on our television screen about the failures of athletes, moral failures. The magnifying glass is there because of their fame. If they were not known, nobody would care. But because they're famous, they're under the glass. Preachers are also, which demands integrity, centered creativity. Rabindranath Tagore, the celebrated poet whom Gandhi dubbed India's great sentinel, included among his many wise sayings, Blessed is he whose fame does not outshine his truth. Neither the truth the preacher sent to share, nor the truth of who the sharer really is, or the sharer's own gifts, is over against those of someone else. While living and serving in Jamaica many years ago, I was in my room working on my schoolwork for the next day and my wife called me into the room where the television was and she said, James, come come here quickly. I rushed in and there on the television as it was about to go off for the night was a minister who was giving what was known then as the epilogue. He was giving a religious meditation and was closing out the day with a sermon, a brief one. And she said to me, James, I remember, I remember that, that he's talking about. I remember you saying something like that, almost verbatim. And as I listened, it was one of my sermons that had appeared in Pulpit magazine. And she said, isn't that your sermon? And I said, "Um, yes, it is. Evidently, this minister had read it in the magazine and liked it so well that he thought he would use it on that particular occasion, not knowing that the one who created the sermon would be in the island at the same time he was using it. I wonder how he would have felt if I had gotten in touch with him to let him know that I had heard his sermon and to let him know the provenance of the sermon. Never use someone else's sermon. Light your fire wherever you can find a flame, but burn your own wood. Sooner or later, every preacher comes across other preachers who show a special giftedness, a kind of genius for pulpit work. Gifted preachers are both like us and they're unlike us. Like us, they're human, they're called, they're conditioned, they're sent, but they are unlike us in the degree or style of their gift. Some of those with a special giftedness for the pulpit seem to see more in a text than we see. And we ask, how did they get that out of that? I didn't see that in that text, but they had eyes to see it. 
That's their gift. Some of them show an inventiveness that enables them to do more with the text than we do. How can they organize the text so aptly? And here I am fumbling with it. That's their gift. Alexander McLaren always could look at a text and get three points out of it. Charles Spurgeon could look at a text and get more than three points. Frederick William Robertson could look at a text and always get a contrast to see both sides of the issue being addressed. That was his gift. Their preaching gains attention because of their giftedness. Truth seems to come through gifted preachers with a clearer focus. It comes through in finer form and with fuller impact. And we marvel about all of this, wondering how much of the perceived effect is due to their individuality, how much is due to their industrious work, and how much is due to inspiration that they receive from the Lord. I don't know how to credit it in terms of percentage. I don't know. Charles Spurgeon would have described it differently. Paul Scherer said, it's 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. I don't know what the percentages are, but I do know that we look at other preachers who seem to do it better than we do it. And we wish we could do it as well. Woe be to the preacher who becomes self-seduced to think that he or she is the standard by which all others must be judged. How many of you remember the name Charles Albert Tendley? Not known in our time because he was on an earlier day. He died in 1933. He was a Methodist preacher, but he still remembered, still mentioned in honor and awe there in Philadelphia. I had the privilege of going to his church, and there I talked with the custodian who remembered the days when Dr. Tenley was there preaching. Dr. Tinley was a self-educated former slave who rose to great heights as a preacher, as a pastor, and as a publisher of more than 40 hymns and spiritual songs. And he was a very respected civic leader on top of all of that. Highly gifted word artist. His sermons were poetic, filled with word scenes. He carefully summarized his subjects effecting precision and impact and often piled one biblical scene on top of another in his preaching in order to share the vision he saw in Scripture with boldness. You never left one of his sermons without having seen what he saw. That was his gift. Peter Marshall was another Presbyterian preacher, became chaplain for the United States Senate, much admired for his rushing alliteration and the way he matched vowels and reiterated sounds as he flowed in his speech. Marvelous Scottish burr. Marshall used a rather rapid cadence as he preached and a rhythm of deliverance that made his words rush like waves building upon each other. I've heard him preach. 
He died in 1949. Great preachers all. Or think about the pulpit workmanship of Gardner Taylor, still among us, an older contemporary who will turn 92 in July, in June of this year. He's a Baptist. He's a legend. His preaching is grandiloquent and much admired. His style is reminiscent of pulpit masters like Arthur John Gossip and James Stewart, two other word artists whose sermon sentences were nearly always pictorial as well as pertinent. Then there was the inimitable Howard Thurman, my great mentor, Baptist preacher also, with rare insights and had a restrained intensity, whose sermons always seem more like communing rather than communication. In listening to Dr. Thurman, you always felt as if you were praying with him as he preached. He never shouted. His contemplative style made object become subject. And his individual way of sharing allowed hearers to experience the vision that he was sharing. But his expression was unforced. Giftedness. Now, it's always human to admire greatness, but we do wrong when we seek to imitate the greatness we've seen. Centered individuality, centered in Christ, centered in the purpose for which we were called, centered in such a way that the creativity never goes beyond the bounds of the plan for which we were called, centered. I'm closing. Ministers are very much like musicians in admiring their models or their mentors. And it is not unusual for some devotee to acquire and use some admired preacher's pulpit robe, like Elisha did taking the mantle of Elijah, throwing it over himself, believing that the double portion of his master's spirit would be upon him. But no matter whose robe you're using, the power that was in their life is not in ours, unless we are centered in the same Christ. There is a mantle of blessing that can be for every one of us, but it must be from the Lord himself, not from those who help to shape us. Admiring gifted persons, learning from their workmanship, or even happily associating with those masters can stimulate us to greater endeavor in our work. But seeing what they have done with their calling and seeing what they've done with their gifts should encourage us to cultivate and develop along the lines of our own giftedness. Because God has posited in you and in me, in each of us, something that is found in no one else in exactly the same way. Every person is individual by nature and by divine plan. And what we do with our own individuality largely determines the contribution we are to make in life. That contribution is valid. And it is vital only when it bears the marks 
of one's own mind and one's own spirit as claimed and anointed by God himself. That constitutes centered creativity. We preachers come in different sizes, different shapes, different skin tones. We come with different backgrounds, different capabilities. In each of us, what is natural must be surrendered to the use of God. Undergirded and enabled by God, things can happen because of us that we never envisioned, and usually in spite of us. We have but to do what our calling and our purpose require, namely, preach the gospel and do that with a persistent faith, with centered creativity, with patient faithfulness, and trust God to supervise the results. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.